You know those friends you make in college because they live right next door to you your freshman year? Well, I was very lucky to live two doors down from a young man in Gilbert Adams' third floor named Urshad Alahi. He was from New Jersey. He'd gone to Pingree. He was roommates with somebody named Paul Downs, who I guess we're all still friends. And from that third floor Gilbert Adams perch, Urshad and I both at different points ended up in New York. We'd see each other from time to time, whether on rooftop birthdays, or both Gemini's, or when I went to his wedding. It was a traditional Bengali wedding, and all I saw was traditional. So I dressed as a traditional wasp, had on pink pants, blazer, ascot. I think I was carrying an umbrella around. I really leaned into being a douchebag. Such are things. But Ershad, he went on to be an emergency room doctor. He was at Woodhull in Brooklyn for many years. And sadly for New York, he and his emergency room doctor wife moved down to Orlando to set up practice there, uh, have more space for their two kids. And I was lucky enough to get some of his time tonight after his 12-hour shift in the emergency room to talk all things corona. Uh, this is one of those episodes I think that actually will be of value to a fairly wide audience. Um, so I hope you enjoy and if you have a notebook, take it out and jot some of the things down he has to say. Dr. Alahi. How's it going? I mean, I'm holding in there. How are are you doing, sir? An an early Saturday night for you? I mean, I think everyone should be having early Saturday nights here in the era of corona. Are you socially distancing yourself? I am. I could not be more socially distant at this point. That's that's what a podcaster's life is all about. Is is that actually what's going on, or are you just enjoying a more... What's the word I'm looking for? A life as a betrothed male. <laughs> uh, a life as a betrothed man. Amanda, what do you think about that? What? Dr. Alahi asked if I was enjoying the life of a betrothed man. And that's why you're not going out that often. Uh, Amanda says, we are just friends. Oh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me put you on my headset, if you don't mind. <laughs> Hold on a sec. I can hear you loud can... and clear. Wait, say say okay. check check. Check check. There you go. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pump up your volume a little bit now. If you get that microphone even closer to your mouth, I'll hear you even better. What's well, on a wireless like um, you know big noise canceling headphones? So I, I don't think I can do much more, but I can speak louder. If you want. There we go. Now you're coming in. Now you're coming in loud and clear. Hello, old friend. How's it going? Congratulations on your new podcast. Thanks, buddy. It's uh, it's been a way. It's been a coping mechanism uh, since 
I have a forced work stoppage that is, as of right now, indefinite. How do you decide on doing this podcast? A friend of mine said, well, what can you do in isolation? And what can you do with your voice? And then he sent me a link to Anchor FM and said, why don't you start a podcast? And within about 45 minutes, uh, I had recorded a trailer, bought all the all the uh, or not bought but registered all the domain names across social media and it was off the races well it's a very catchy title and i think it's gonna gonna be pretty interesting there's so many different avenues of um, information being created i don't know if you i'm sure you realize that by looking at everything available out there now but um i haven't, I haven't seen anything within like the audio streaming world this is cool Thanks, buddy. Um, and you know, where, where I had a uh, forced work stoppage, uh, I'm I'm imagining the corona has only increased your workload. Um, I, I wouldn't say really yet. Uh, I think it depends on where you're looking throughout the country. So you know, in the ER I work, or the ERs I listen to a few different ones. We have people coming in, but it's not like it's people are, are busting down the doors to come in to either be tested or um, out of fear. I mean, the public the public health message that's going out, I don't know how well it's received in different states or what the publicity is state to state. In Florida, people, I think, overall are actually not using the emergency department as like the first line of questions. Um, there's actually a really good article I don't know how like comprehensive or how in-depth it is, but an article from MSNBC came out. I don't know if you saw it, but it's essentially outlining. It's, um, I'll, I'll email you the link. It's outlining all the different um, states and what their uh, policies and policies and testing um, decision points are per state. And with that, there are links to each state's um, resources page or you know Department of Health website. So I think that's been... That's like a really good thing for I think the public to get uh, their hands on because they can actually use it as a reference tool. I don't know how much the Department of Health and Florida is being used for these questions, uh, but it's not like people are coming in left and right to be tested. Um, and, and does that surpri- does that surprise you? Um, had you kind of been uh, preparing yourself for an influx of terrified people looking to get Corona tests? I mean, it's it's. Varies county to county, so I would expect it to happen a lot more in like places like New Rochelle in New York or Westchester County because there's such a large uh, prevalence of disease in that area. Um, our county actually has not seen any cases. There's a case that came out maybe of an hour away from us, but a lot of the cases are more concentrated along the coast as opposed to Central Florida, which is where I am. Um, so I think that places that have higher incidence of, um, of actual confirmed cases, probably, I, I would I'd assume they're seeing more people come in to be tested um, just because it's more in their area. But we haven't really gotten that much. And, you know, this is coming from me. I've only worked a few shifts here and there in the last couple weeks, last week or two. So, you know, that differs from person to person um, depending on what's happening on the shift. But we're seeing a couple today, a couple per day. I saw two that came in today that were of concern or, you know, we've had a higher suspicion. So 
Um, but there are a lot of hospitals. There are a lot of freestanding ERs. I don't really have a good uh, compilation of data to be able to suggest one way or the other, but it's not like every patient that's coming in is a worried well patient that's uh, worried about having uh, coronavirus exposure. Now, this question may not even mean anything, but do you have enough tests? I mean, do you have what you need um, to give people peace of mind? So hospital, the testing is not hospital-based. Um, the testing, we are not the gatekeepers for the testing. For our hospital and many others, you really have to be in contact with either your your local hospital infection control person um, or administrator, and then based on certain uh, criteria, if the patient meets those, then they get tested. Uh, and usually those tests aren't in-house. They're usually sent out to, you know, a, a lab somewhere else. So we we don't have the discretion to be able to, as a clinician, as the emergency physician, to test whomever we want. It really is depending on the story and some other clinical features. So we, we, we don't necessarily have the the power to say, all right, I'm going to test you. Okay, I'm going to test you. It's really in conjunction with some other folks in the hospital and the Department of Health to make that decision. That's a, that's probably a, a good thing for people to know than not to flood the ER uh, if, if they are concerned because it just doesn't sound like it's the appropriate place to go. Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, I don't know what the thought process is amongst them, but, you know, I work today and on, on a Saturday, it's not exceptionally busy, but it was very slow today, and that could be just day-to-day variation, every day is different, but... You know, part of me, part of me does believe that people aren't, you know, misusing the emergency department for this particular issue. I think, you know, people are aware of the, how contagious it is and, you know, the fact that hospitals are petri dishes. And, and so maybe they're not coming for those reasons. But I don't really know how strong the message of, you know, quarantining if you do have symptoms and those things are. And I just don't, you know, have any... Um, real insight into what other people are thinking in our in our community so that don't have a community engagement you know now going back to that idea or the metaphor of a petri dish have you have you changed any of your practices uh given given the coronavirus i mean is is there any more readiness that you're doing is there any more uh, are there different protocols in place or have they always been so rigorous that there's there's nothing more you can actually do. Um, no, I think I think from a hospital standpoint, there have been clinical protocols for um, personal protective equipment. So PPE is a big thing. So how do you suit up if you're worried about someone with a contagious illness? And it's very similar to when there's the Ebola outbreak, and we're concerned about there being Ebola patients with Ebola or concerns with Ebola coming to our emergency funds in New York when we work there, you have to have a different level of protective, personal protective equipment. So for the random patient that I might see with a cough and a cold where I'm not worried about any type of the highly contagious disease like coronavirus, you put on a mask, put on gloves, and you go see them. But then we were kind of expected um, to put on, like, full gown, the specific type of respirator, N95 respirator mask they're called, which decrease the likelihood of um, any penetration of droplets or aerosolized droplets 
Um, so there's a, there's definitely a lot more protective barriers um, being required or being suggested for patients that we believe are at high risk for coronavirus. Um, and just to be so, cl- just to be clear, when you were an emergency room doctor in New York, you had Ebola readiness procedures. Yeah, so I mean, I think every hospital, I don't know, throughout the country, I think New York, especially because we are such a metropolitan place with a lot of international transit, people were ready um, for Ebola, potentially. And we had readiness protocols, isolation protocols um, for for these patients to come in, how where they would be seen, who would see them, um, kind of a chain of command and who to be called, the type of... Um, interactions and interfacing that has happened between us and the clinicians and people like environmental um, sanitation, how they would make sure the place is cleaned and nursing. So it was a very well rehearsed and actually drilled protocol thing. We would have um, like secret shoppers that would come in with symptoms that were consistent with Ebola and then we would drill it to see how well people were uh, doing with the idea of putting on protective equipment, donning it, which is putting it on and then doffing it, which is taking it off to decrease the risk of exposure to themselves. Uh, so that, that was really well, at least when we were in New York during Ebola, it was really well uh, protocolized and also practiced. And, and you know, look, I think I read the hot zone uh, for a book report in the seventh grade, and I don't think there's anything more terrifying than Ebola's eye ear, as I think it used to be called. Um, given that you used to uh, protocolize, protocolize, I can't pronounce that word, protocolize? Say that for me one more time. Yeah, protocolize, yeah. <laughs> that used to do that for Ebola in New York. Um, does that give you confidence that if uh, Corona does come to your county, uh, you're going to be especially prepared um, given given your experience here in New York? Uh, I mean, for me personally, it's maybe maybe I'll be better than, because I was in a leadership role in that hospital, as teaching how to be able to put on and don and doff the personal protective equipment. Maybe I feel like I'd be better prepared myself to deal with those patients because I feel comfortable in, in, a, in a doing the actual procedure of taking on, taking off like gowns to make sure I don't get infected. But it, it's a different situation because it's just a front line in the emergency department as far as seeing and clinically evaluating a patient. It also depends on how sick the patient is, right? So if the patient comes with a small little cough and cold, we can do all this stuff and put that gear on. And many of these patients, even if they're going to get tested, if they're not ill and needing hospitalization, they're going to be sent home. But we, I have yet to have a patient that was so ill that needed to be um, in an ICU setting or needed to be in, on a ventilator or yeah, intubated or anything where there's like a lot more interaction with their own bodily fluids and germs and secretions. So I, I don't know if I'd necessarily feel significantly better with that just because of my experience with the bullet training. Uh, but at least knowing the personal protective equipment aspect, I would say, yeah. That's, that's a- absolutely fascinating. Now, you know, switching gears slightly um, for all the listeners out there, all seven of you. Hi, mom. Uh, you are eight now. <laughs> <'cause> I'm <out laughs> on it. 
you, you're married to a doctor as well, and Nubaha is a emergency room doctor also? In the same, in the same emergency department. And I'm, I'm so curious to know, what protocols do the two of you as a couple have in place given that you have two young children at home? Uh, what, what are you doing to keep your, your kids uh, as safe as possible? I mean, so she, so it's funny because I work today until six o'clock and then she's working the overnight and she took, took over for me at six o'clock today. So she's at work right now working overnight. And as she, we were saying goodbye to each other, she said, Hey, you got to make sure you shower when you come home <laughs> <laughs> after, after these shifts. But I didn't do it yesterday. And I was like, all right, that's Rashad, a good thing. Rashad, you know, shower after your yeah. shift? Shame. Yeah, it's okay. So... Ultimately, you know, today was a different day. Maybe it was a little dirtier today, so I was like, all right, fine. But the we haven't really talked about it too much. I think it hasn't really hit us too that much yet in this area as far as the number and the volume of the patients with special coronavirus are seeing. So we haven't gotten a chance to sit down and come up with a plan. But there's a possibility that one of us might get quarantined, might have to self-quarantine, right, if we have the symptoms. It, it, and then what? And then so one of us will... Will both of us not be able to work? Will what does that mean? take care of the kids? The kids, yeah. So the, the kids are, you know, office of my three-year-old out of school right now because of spring break, which I think will be probably be extended by a week. You know, so we, there's a, there's a lot of unknowns that might disrupt their lives. Hopefully, we're very healthy throughout this if we do get, you know, contract sure. the virus. But it's, um, yeah, we have to talk about that. I guess we'll put that on our talking points for the next hangout session. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I guess you guys are almost like two ships in the night, given that, that you're replacing each other on these twelve hours. Sometimes, yeah. So at least, at least today, yeah. And, and if you did have to self quarantine, where exactly does that self quarantine take place? Is it is it like in the garage, or is there somewhere else you go? I mean, I think that's a person for me personally, or you mean for anyone? I for, think for you, for anyone, it just yeah. I mean. I mean Luckily for us in Florida, as opposed to when we used to live in Brooklyn, we have 4,000 square feet at disposal. So, you know, I can hold myself up in a place that has its own ensuite bathroom. Ooh, and, fancy. And, 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 and stay there if necessary for two weeks and, you know, try and limit my exposure to both <laughs> my children and my wife. So I think, I think that's the thing. It's, it's, a tough, it's a tough proposition for people that have with a family or if you have elderly folks at home, the family members, how are you going to really effectively stay away from them? Um, and that's something that, like, you know, we as a country, I don't think I've ever had to really think about. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to, I mean, it makes it easier. I think in this day and age more than any other time, there's easy ways to isolate yourself and still stay active and with, like, streaming video and Wi-Fi and, you know, delivery services for food and, uh, and like Instacart and stuff. I mean, it's easier than it probably was 15 or 20 years ago, but it's by no means easy emotionally or mentally or psychologically, you know? No, and I, I mean, I can imagine a scenario as strange as FaceTiming with one of your children from the other side of the door. In the same house. In the same house. <laughs> you know, is... is yeah. it, and, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there that... Um, probably already are quarantining is there anything more that you can do than just being in a different room i mean 
is it kind of like when you were uh, back in high school and you used to hotbox a room and put a towel underneath the door? Or is it as simple as just staying in a room and closing the door? Um, oh, I never hotboxed, so I'm not sure about that. <laughs> However, uh, but I think, I think a part of it is, it depends on how symptomatic you are. If you are, you know, if you have a little bit of a fever and you aren't coughing, and you're not spreading your respiratory droplets all over the place, it's a little less of an issue. Um, if you're having the whole gamut of runny nose and you're germy, and you know, so you have to kind of do a better job of making sure everything is clean. So, you know, you you know, be better about wiping surfaces down, uh, door handles, things where there's a possibility people might come in contact with. I can't predict whether or not my kids are going to run into my room, right? So, yeah. you know, being being aware of those easily touched areas or most frequently touched areas and sanitizing those is probably the biggest thing. Um, some people say that, you know, we know that respiratory droplets, uh, droplets from um, infections that are passed from respiratory secretions um, are in the air and aerosolized. And some people believe that highly humidified air might pull those droplets down to the ground as opposed to them being in the air. Interesting. So, you know, maybe having a humidifier that, that increases the level of humidity in your room might help. Uh, you know, I know that, that's some of the idea, uh, but there's not much more you can do. You have to be good about, you know, putting a mask on potentially, making sure you wash your hands often. You know, if you need to come down the stairs or go and do stuff, doing it when other people aren't around. So if your family's at work or your kids are at school, they come and do whatever you need to do, get stuff in the refrigerator or bottled water and then go back up, making sure you're wiping surfaces down as you do it. I mean, it's, it sounds pretty crazy to have to go to such lengths, but if you really want to decrease the likelihood of other people becoming infected, that's kind of what has to happen. That's, that's really good to know because I was actually just talking with Amanda about what the protocol would be if uh, one of my parents got sick. Uh, my mom's 72, my dad's 70, and you know, God forbid should one of them start, uh, you know, having symptoms, um, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to send them uh, this podcast tonight and, you know, just make sure that they have things in place, you know, should one of them not start feeling well. So this is, this is, this is enormously helpful. Um well, I mean, outside of, outside of what I'm telling you, there, the, the rapid fire with which resources are coming out from different sources is pretty pretty impressive. I mean, the CDC, I'm pretty sure, has a bunch of resources about how to self quarantine, how to you know how to be clean when you self quarantine. I think they have stuff about you know how to stay even busy while you're self quarantining, keeping your mind. There are like a bunch of different resources. That I, there's like a you know a dedicated coronavirus um, site on the CDC website, which I would recommend people to check out when they have some time. Um, it's top of information. That's that's a really you know sometimes we forget that that those resources are are really that easy to access given given the internet and. And I appreciate that reminder. Uh, you know, one thing I've been asking everybody I've been talking to, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, uh, 
what potential world could we be in such that we look back and actually think of this coronavirus scare, this anxiety, this pandemic as producing some good? Um, you know, whether it's a societal change or a medical community change or public health change, um, what, what do you, where do you think this disaster may have a silver lining? Oh man! I mean, where can I even start? How much time do you have? So, <laughs> I think I, this, I mean, is, this has been fascinating. I, I just I want to hear all your thoughts. I mean, I think that from understanding the disease process, it, we have no idea what it's going to look like a few months from now. Um, so, from just like a pathology standpoint, is this going to be a, a virus that we're going to have to eradicate just by isolation? Um, and kind of stamping it out that way, or is there going to be seasonal variation? Um, there's some that do have seasonal variation. I think it was shown that SARS did have seasonal variation, but MERS didn't, in the sense that, you know, as the warmer months hit, the incidence of SARS went down. Um, will this be similar to this COVID-19 uh, strain? I'm, I'm not sure. So if, you know, a few months from now in June, we might be sitting here saying, well, it's actually not that prevalent anymore because of seasonal variation. Or six months from now or a few months from now, we might say it's still very prevalent. So um, that information, retrospectively having it, is going to be very helpful from just understanding the disease process. Obviously, everything else that's going on on like the microbiology and virology level, figuring out whether or not a vaccine is going to be possible or there going to be medications and antivirals that help the sickest of the sick when they're circling the drain and about to die. I mean, those are going to be important. I think uh, a couple of things that we're going to take away from kind of on a public health and governmental level is how are physicians mobilizing? So I'm of the opinion that physicians, because there's everyone specialized, um, we don't do a good job of crosstalk on a, on a larger level, like, on a global level, a statewide, national level. Mm -hmm. I think that from what I'm seeing in some of the Facebook groups I'm in and a lot of the articles I'm reading, there's a lot more crosstalk and attempts at collaboration going on for the greater good, obviously. Um, and that's even happening to the levels of, uh, obviously, local, state, and federal government. So I'm wondering whether or not this pandemic will actually increase and espouse better collaboration on multiple, you know, throughout multiple medical disciplines, but also with the government, local government and in federal government as well to try and make sure that we're part of the uh, solution as well as they're getting our input as to what to do. Because it's not just a question of what's going on with the virus. It's a question of how are we appropriately utilizing resources? Are we ramping up all the, in all the different ways possible to decrease the likelihood of overburdening the hospital, including normal, regular, regular medical beds, ICU beds, are we going to have enough ventilators if things get out of hand? So making sure that all um, important parties uh, from, you know, infectious disease specialists, emergency physicians, intensivists, ICU doctors, as well as the people that hold the finances of the hospital, uh, that they're actually stakeholders in these decisions when we go forward. I mean, that's, that, that gives me hope that you know, if if we see even a worse virus, you know, five years from now, ten years from now, I think it was the Kardashians that predicted another one of these in ten years, uh, according to Instagram. Uh, that you know, w we we definitely will be better prepared. 
and um, I I really th- th- that that does give me hope. I I have one last question I haven't asked anybody else, um, but I'm so curious. Was the was there any gossip about uh, former gubernatorial candidate Andrew Gillum uh, in your in your hospital today? You know, we we don't really have time to gossip. I mean, I saw the I saw the article, and that's kind of as far as I went. Uh, I didn't even read the article; I just read the headline. So, <clears throat> no gossip so far. No gossip. Sorry to disappoint you, yeah, you just, and the listeners. <laughs> yeah, I just I, I saw I saw the headline as well, and I read the article, and I said that is that that is bizarre, and you know, given that that he. Uh, it was happening down in Miami, um, you know, not that far from you, uh, and in your state. I didn't know if that was something that people were talking about, but I guess there's no. more, I guess there's more important things going on in uh, in the, the bigger fish to fry. Yeah, than than a failed gubernatorial candidate's um, dalliance with uh, methamphetamines and uh, and everything else involved. Um, <laughs> on on that odd note. I really, really want to thank you uh, for taking the time. I mean, God, it's been about 27 minutes that you've been speaking with me. And, um, you know, you, you, you really, a, as a member of the public, I, I, I want to thank you for you know, keeping our, our fellow uh, our fellow citizens safe. Um, the work that you and your wife do is uh, Yeah, man, I, extra obviously it's, uh, it's not, you, everyone puts their kind of work hat on and we put on our, um, kind of impartial, objective, well, you know, if I get sick, I'm not going to, it's not going to be that bad. Um, but because I'm young and I'm relatively healthy and we worried about the elderly, but I think, you know, to be it's human to be concerned about it because there's still young people getting ill. You know, there's 30 yeah. something year olds that are getting, having to be in the ICU and, you know, the people, the folks that have been dying, some of the folks in China that died, one of the one of the doctors that was quote unquote one of the whistleblowers of coronavirus being an epidemic, he passed away, and he was, I saw that. you know my age. So, so you know, there's a, there's still a lot of there's still a lot of concern around that. So I think knowing that and knowing that I'm still susceptible to illness and it might be grave illness is scary. But the only way for I think the public to really decrease the likelihood of that happening to them is all the stuff that's coming out. I mean, it's I feel like there have been all I'm seeing, the buzzword social distancing is just probably the hottest buzzword right now <laughs> <laughs> in, 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 in all the social media. Yeah. I, and I think that, like, and, you know, I'm not a public health expert by any means, and I, I, I wasn't really privy to all the data out there, the epidemiological data and, like, the public health notions of social distancing and how it can actually flatten the curve, quote-unquote. That's another very, very hot term now as far as um, the epidemiology flatten the curve of, of incidents, but it's, it's crazy how much that can actually help. And the idea of isolating yourself or you and your kids. And today I was like, so I'm going to have to take care of my kids for two weeks potentially and not see anyone, <laughs> but it, you know, and not having a play date. And it, it, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow, but you know, I think everyone's got to back up and, um, Take one for the team for the better good of you know humanity. Well, I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know what else gonna, what's going to happen. But I think you know. And I live in a place. I live like by Disney. So you're yeah. taking big corporations are taking death, like drastic measures and losing tons of money to decrease the you know 
touch points between humans. So if they're willing to do it, I guess we could do it too. <laughs> well, it, it's it's so appreciated, and you know, stay safe out there. Um, keep those uh, th- those Ebola tactics uh, front and center, um, and. Uh, Definitely, definitely be in touch. I'd love to have you back on Corona Convos uh, as uh, things develop one way or the other, um, both uh, in Orlando and across the country. Hopefully, I'll still be an authority and not a client, if you know what I'm saying, <laughs> and not a patient. <laughs> well, how about this? Next time you talk to me. I mean, it'd be pretty great content if you were a patient. Just saying. Okay, I'll, I'll look into it. I'll see what I can do for you. Hey, thanks so much, Ashad. Uh, you are really missed in New York, but uh, Orlando is better off to have, to have you and your wife. Thanks, Dan. We'll talk soon. Take right. care. Bye. Bye-bye.